the History Channel original podcast. History This Week, October 1st, 1904. I'm Sally Helm. Show up at a newsstand this morning, and you'll see that the October issue of McClure's magazine has hit the shelves. Its bright orange cover features a tranquil landscape drawing. Mountains, leafy trees, a lake. There are some orange flowers in an elegant gray flower pot and vines twisting up some columns. If it weren't for the other newspapers sitting alongside McClure's on the shelves, you might not know that inside this issue of the magazine is one of the most explosive stories of the decade. But those other papers give you a hint. Standard Oil Attacked, reads one Vermont headline. That's a big deal. Standard Oil is one of the biggest, most important corporations in the country. If you open up a paper trying to learn more, you might see an advertisement for McClure's with this statement in bold letters. Ida M. Tarbell renders her final judgment of Rockefeller's trust. Tarbell is a famous investigative reporter, and tucked inside that bright orange issue of McClure's is her latest article about the oil company owned by John D. Rockefeller, the richest man in the country. It's the 19th and final installment in a series that has really made people sit up and take notice. The Boston Globe would call Tarbell's history of the Standard Oil Company a series of unequaled importance. A paper in Kansas City wrote, it is a work which cannot be ignored. And the Philadelphia Inquirer seemed impressed that all of this was accomplished by a woman. And more than that, quote, the kind of woman whom one expects to see tuning a lyre or singing an aria rather than stabbing a great corporation below the fifth rib. Today, we meet that corporation stabber, Ida Tarbell. How did a scrappy reporter take on the richest man in the country? And how, in the process, did she change corporate America and investigative journalism itself. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When Ida Tarbell was born in 1857, her home in northwest Pennsylvania was mostly farmland and lumber towns. But around the time she turned two, things drastically changed. In August 1859, a prospector drilling in the town of Titusville, Pennsylvania, struck oil. It was a kind of gold rush after the actual gold rush. Stephanie Gorton is the author of a book about Tarbell. She told us back in 1859, There were no oil wells in Texas or in Russia or the Middle East. Meaning that northwestern Pennsylvania became the epicenter of what was called the oil region. Some called it 
oil dorado. At the peak of the boom, Pennsylvania was supplying about a third of the world's oil. Ida Tarbell's father worked in the industry, first building wooden barrels to store and transport oil, later leasing and buying wells himself. His daughter Ida was raised near towns that were literally called Oil City and Petroleum Center. She lived on the bank of a waterway called Oil Creek. Which, perhaps unsurprisingly, wasn't an ideal playground for kids like little Ida. She was warned to avoid the open oil pits that speckled her neighborhood. Imagine the wild, wild west. I don't think people were actually getting shot, but they were getting burned instead. Kathleen Brady, who wrote a biography about Tarbell's life, describes how in this region, petroleum literally ran like water. Firefighters trying to pump up water sometimes accidentally struck oil instead, which, of course, fueled the very flames they were trying to fight. Oftentimes, there were horrible accidents, and men who were burned terribly were brought to the nearest home, and on occasion, it was the Tarbell home. And Ida had a horrific fear of getting burned all her life because of what she saw as a child. She came out of that landscape with a real dislike of the oil industry. Stephanie Gorton again. Part of that is probably an incident that happened when she was 15 years old. It would be remembered as the Oil War of 1872. And it was the first time that Ida Tarbell came face-to-face with John D. Rockefeller. Rockefeller had recently incorporated a new company known as Standard Oil. And he had high hopes for its future. Rockefeller's son giving a speech at Brown University compared Standard Oil in his family's eyes to the cultivation of some kind of prize rose or a flower. And he said, in order to produce the perfect flower, 50 or so more small buds must be lopped off. In 1872, those smaller buds looked like independent oilmen, which included Ida Tarbell's father. Rockefeller, to give his company an edge over those small producers and refiners, struck a deal with three major railroad companies. They'd let him ship his oil at lower prices while charging more to everyone else. When it's discovered that Standard Oil has this sweetheart deal with the railroad companies and that it's going to obliterate the livelihood of independent oil men, there's an uprising in oil country. Franklin Tarbell and other independent producers band together in a sort of union. They hang banners saying, no surrender, and down with the conspirators. They sign a pledge to never sell to Rockefeller. They even raid his oil cars in a fury. Up until this point, Standard Oil men and the independent producers had lived side by side in peace. After... They wouldn't greet each other. They wouldn't socialize with each other anymore. They would cross the street rather than pass close to them. So it was an enormous division that started in the community because of the scheme. In the end, Pennsylvania courts force an end to this sweetheart deal. And Rockefeller tries a new tactic to trim back those smaller buds. He comes to Pennsylvania himself in an attempt to convince the independent oil producers and refiners to join his ranks. Luckily for him, 
the following year brings an economic downturn. And many of the independent producers say, okay. By 1876, a local paper reports that Standard Oil owns or controls nearly every refinery in northwest Pennsylvania. All this leaves a permanent mark on people like Franklin Tarbell. According to Ida, he no longer comes home eager to regale his family with stories of his workday. His after-dinner cigar no longer seems able to relax him. He had held in his mind this idea of the American dream, where he could build up his own business and support his family on the back of that. After the oil war, it was clear that a wage-earning job for a larger company was really his only opportunity for survival. And this was, to him, uh, a huge humiliation. And Ida keenly felt that on her father's behalf. As she enters adulthood, she's driven by a desire to become independent, educated, and financially stable. She enrolls at Allegheny College, 30 miles from home, one of only a handful of women there. And when she graduates, after a brief stint as a teacher, she gets a job working for the editor of a new educational and religious magazine. At this point, Tarbell doesn't identify as a journalist. She said it was a stopgap. It was never meant to be anything more. But she ends up working there for eight years. And then one day, when she's in her 30s, she has a realization. She's in church, listening to a sermon. And suddenly she has this thought. She thinks, I'm not growing where I am now. She decides to up and move to Paris to write. Nearly everybody around her was trying to persuade her that making a living as a writer was foolhardy, that she was giving up a good path, secure independence. She was over 30. She was told nobody should try anything new over 30. She decides to go. Tarbell spends her time reporting and writing all kinds of articles about life in France. And she pitches one of them about the paving of the streets of Paris to an organization in the U.S. that collects stories to sell to other publications. There, it lands on the desk of a young editor, Samuel McClure. When Samuel McClure finds this story in what they call the slush pile in his office in New York, he reads it and is just galvanized. He thinks it's fantastic. And he shows it to his business partner and says, who is she? Who's Ida M. Tarbell? Apparently, he says, this girl can write. And he wants her to do more work for him. McClure is going to Europe at that point anyway and decides to stop in Paris. And he shows up on her doorstep. Tarbell writes about this later, that he was the most vivid, vital creature she had ever seen. McClure initially says he can only stay 10 minutes. He has to catch a train. But he ends up staying for several hours, telling her his life story. And he tells her about his hopes to launch a new magazine, one with great writing, high journalistic standards, and a low enough price that regular people can read it. He asks her, would you want to be involved in something like that? She's completely charmed by him and says, sure. This is a turning point in Tarbell's life. She spends the next two years interviewing famous Frenchmen and sending her work overseas to Sam McClure. And then, after three years in Paris, she agrees to move to New York to work for his new magazine. Sam McClure essentially creates the role of staff writer for Ida Tarbell. So he can assure her of his salary and of an expense account when she's off doing research and writing stories for him. On her journey back to live in New York City, Tarbell stops at home 
in Titusville, Pennsylvania, to visit her family. It's very bittersweet stopping in Titusville and driving around the countryside with her brother, Will. They go to see the landmarks of their childhood, where they used to play, and they find a landscape that's unfamiliar to them. So many families that they have known have left. So many bustling small oil enterprises have shut down. Well, of course, the family, there were money troubles. Kathleen Brady again. Her father had been in business with a man who his dealings with Rockefeller, or at least his financial situation was such that the man was ruined. He ends up taking his own life. And Ida Tarbell's father lands with all of his debt. The family has to take out a mortgage on their home. They're strapped for cash. That was a difficult and not happy time in the family. In this moment, the late 1800s, a version of this story is playing out in families all over the country. What was happening in American businesses, they were becoming national instead of local, as they always had been. And this was true in meat. It was true in steel. Some of these big companies are essentially monopolies. The one big player that dominates an industry and can stamp out its competition. In this era, they're known as the trusts. And American politics has taken note. In 1890, the Sherman Antitrust Act had passed. It's a law trying to fight monopolies and protect competition. But by the time Tarbell gets back to the States in the summer of 1894, the law is mostly being used against trade unions, not industrial behemoths like Standard Oil. Labor is a huge topic in this political era. In the last 30 years of the century, government troops, militias, or the National Guard were deployed in over 500 labor-related disputes. People, and journalists, are thinking a lot about labor and economic issues as the 19th century comes to a close. Ida Tarbell spends her first several years at McClure's mostly doing profiles of famous dead men, like Napoleon and Abraham Lincoln. But by around 1900, McClure's is starting to be known for a new type of investigative reporting, one where writers use their pens to raise issues of corruption and injustice. It would become known as muckraking. A muckraker was someone who just looked at the mud and not at the blue sky. So it wasn't a complimentary term, but these people did an enormous amount of good in exposing some of the unfortunate things that were going on. It was becoming increasingly clear to everyone on the staff at McClure's that there was one topic they just had to cover, the trusts. Around the table at staff meetings, they debate the best way to go about it. They consider covering the sugar industry, the beef trust. But then they get the news that someone has struck oil in California and a new gusher has been tapped in Texas. At this point, Rockefeller's Standard Oil Company controls over 80% of the American industry. And the staff agrees. This is their way in to a huge economic story. As they're discussing this, Tarbell starts sharing her own memories of growing up in oil country, the monopoly activity she'd seen firsthand. And she said, well, it should be something like Rockefeller came into Titusville and the independent oil business and bought up various 
concerns and was an illegal competitor and got special rates and drove people out of business. Tarbell herself wasn't convinced that a story like this would interest any readers outside the oil industry. But her colleagues are like, Ida, that's fascinating. You have to cover it. And so it's decided. Ida Tarbell would write the series on Rockefeller and his Standard Oil Trust. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In 1901, Ida Tarbell sets out to look into the biggest trust of them all, Standard Oil. And she begins close to home. She started in the oil region, and all the human sources who had reliable memories and all the county courthouses. Steve Weinberg was a journalist himself for over 50 years. He decided to write about Ida Tarbell when he was serving as the president of an investigative journalism organization because... She was incredibly influential, not just in doing the stories that made her famous, but also in the techniques that she invented to get at the truth. Tarbell's goal is to find out whatever dirt she can on Standard Oil. And she knows that she can't approach anyone at the company until she already has something. As she later put it, quote, the Standard Oil Company would have shut the door of their closet on the skeleton. But after one had discovered the skeleton and scrutinized him at a very close range, why then shut the door? Her first order of business is following the paper trail. At this point, there were already plenty of lawsuits against Standard Oil in individual states. And within the court records, an intrepid journalist could find... Corporate documents and land leases and contracts with railroads. Plenty to dig into. But to get to them... Some of these courthouses were in very remote places. She had to ride trains and find whatever transportation she could find. Horse and buggy. There were no cars to drive for her. And of course, there was always sort of, I would presume, local gossip about a woman coming to town, unchaperoned and staying by herself in some sort of seedy hotel. But Tarbell goes all around the country, building relationships with archivists and clerks, the people who actually have control of all these paper records. And she gets her hands on a lot of them. But that's only the first step. If you can even find the records and obtain them, 
Then you got to interpret them, which isn't always easy either. She pours over complicated court records, analyzes the data she can find, and deepens her understanding of the paper trail by talking to real people. But Kathleen Brady told us, to Tarbell's surprise, getting people back home in Titusville to talk is much harder than she'd anticipated. People were afraid to talk to her. People either thought it was going to be a hymn of praise to John D. Rockefeller. They thought she'd probably been bought up by him. Or if they told her anything negative, Rockefeller would somehow harm them. Tarbell's own father warns her not to mess with Rockefeller. Don't do it, Ida, he says. They will ruin the magazine. Many people warned her that Rockefeller was going to harm her. And she said, no, he will not, because if anything happened to me, it would be obvious that uh, Rockefeller and Standard Oil was at the root of it. So she felt she was pretty safe. The only time she was ever concerned was when she was at a party at Alexander Graham Bell's house and a banker wanted to speak with her. And the banker said, we are aware of what you're doing, Miss Tarbell, and we want you to stop. But Tarbell keeps going. She's started to get her head around the paperwork. She's convinced more and more people to talk to her. But there's one person she really needs to get close to. And it's going to be difficult. Tarbell has to figure out John D. Rockefeller himself. Unlike Napoleon or Lincoln, this was a living person, the wealthiest man in the country, and one of the most influential. Rockefeller has been called the greatest philanthropist in American history. Stephanie Gorton told us Rockefeller was known for financing progressive causes, health clinics for low-income women, universities. He funded a school for Black women that would later become Spelman College. And he was a shrewd businessman. That's part of the way he was able to build up Standard Oil in the first place. Rockefeller gets wind of the fact that Tarbell is digging around. And he makes it clear. He will not be talking to her. But then one day, she runs into a strange opportunity. Mark Twain introduces her to a man named Henry Rogers. Rogers works for Standard Oil. He'd been an independent refiner who'd been bought up by Rockefeller. And he lived for a time on the banks of Oil Creek. So he and Tarbell have some history in common. Back in 1872, Rogers had protested Rockefeller's sweetheart deal with the railroads, right alongside people like Franklin Tarbell. But now, he is a standard oil VP and one of Rockefeller's right-hand men. He's heard about the series Ida is reporting, and he decides it might be a good idea to invite her in a little so he'll have a chance to help shape the narrative. So he asks a mutual friend, who happens to be the writer Mark Twain, to put them in touch. Tarbell and Rogers uh, develop this dynamic, this kind of working agreement, almost like two people who want to keep each other close as opponents rather than as friends. For two years, Tarbell and Rogers would meet secretly at the Standard Oil offices in New York. She'd be led by an assistant through a private route to his office where they'd talk behind closed doors. She would come to him with her drafts, with her outlines and with her notes, and ask him for confirmation of certain points. 
This way, he would have some insight into what she was writing about and what he could expect to be published. And she would have an inside source to give her an indication one way or another whether her research was on track. Tarbell was careful to ensure that their relationship could never be misconstrued. She's so concerned about conflict of interest, she refuses even the glass of milk that he offers her to drink. Tarbell is writing her own journalistic rulebook, a rigorous one. She has a policy of confirming any fact someone tells her independently from multiple sources. She discounts testimonies that seem personally motivated or biased. The first journalism school in the country wasn't around when she was going through her education. So for her to have solidified these ethics for herself and to approach her work with this kind of meticulousness speaks a lot for how dedicated she was to her work. In November of 1902, Tarbell's first story about Standard Oil is released. It opens in a place she knows well. Quote, One of the busiest corners of the globe at the opening of the year 1872 was a strip of northwestern Pennsylvania, not over 50 miles long, known the world over as the oil regions. Once people begin to read Tarbell's work, things happen quick. In a way, how I imagine this is when you're listening to an investigative podcast today and developments happen in the story as the series episodes are being dropped. One day, after Tarbell's stories have begun to be released, a teenaged clerk working inside Standard Oil comes across some papers. Completely by chance, a stack of papers he'd been given to burn had the name on them of an independent oil refiner who had been his Sunday school teacher. So it was a familiar name to him. And as he traced this person's name on the papers that were being burnt, he pieced together what was happening. What was happening was a competition-crushing conspiracy, not unlike the railroad scheme in Pennsylvania that had been exposed years before. Now, Standard Oil was colluding with the railroad companies to spy on its competitors and delay or stop their shipments. The clerk is shocked. Instead of burning the papers like he'd been told, he gives them to that former Sunday school teacher. And that teacher? But read the McClure series and shared the evidence with Ida Tarbell. So with this insider's help, she was able to confirm the truth of a charge that others had kind of murmured to her and that she had thought of as, at best, a wrong impression, at worst, a conspiracy theory. Turns out, it's true. Tarbell's next article, titled Cutting to Kill, is explosive. When she'd brought it to Rogers at Standard Oil, he'd pressured her to give up her insider source, but she refused. Rogers was furious, and he brought their interviews to an end. And that meant she was forced to finish her research for the rest of the series with no access to Standard Oil itself. Rogers had also been her best chance of accessing Rockefeller himself. Now, Tarbell is left to write the most personal article of the series, a profile of Rockefeller, without any chance of getting him to talk. And Rockefeller is a confusing figure, a pious philanthropic man on the one hand, a ruthless businessman on the other. As one of his business partners put it, Rockefeller, quote, would give $100,000 one minute to charity and turn around and haggle over the price of a ton of coal. 
Tarbell really wants to understand him. And so she goes digging. With the help of a research assistant, she's able to track down Rockefeller's father, who everyone had thought was dead. She interviews him and others in Rockefeller's hometown. And then, Kathleen Brady told us, to get a glimpse of the man himself. Ida went to his church in Cleveland. He was a very generous patron of the church where he worshipped. And Ida very much disguised herself and watched him. By the end of her series, Tarbell has painted a vivid portrait of the company that had devoured the American oil industry. And the public response? is essentially rapturous. Stephanie Horton says Tarbell's reporting turned the public against Rockefeller. Newspaper cartoons mocked him ruthlessly. President Teddy Roosevelt would later decline Standard Oil's campaign donations. When she finally publishes that profile of Rockefeller himself in 1905, it only adds fuel to the fire. Ida Tarbell found many things to admire about John D. Rockefeller. He had such a brilliant mind. He was such a good businessman. He had such attention to detail. His thinking was so strategic. There was so much to admire about him. She did not admire the fact that he had broken the laws. Tarbell's profile of Rockefeller opens with a description of his success, his philanthropy. But then... Ida Tarbell said, rich indeed should be his gifts for all he has taken. So Ida was not so impressed by his charity. And I think that is something we might be mindful as we see the enormous wealth and inequity that exists today. Rockefeller himself refused to respond directly to Tarbell, but he did launch a PR campaign to try to recoup his image. Generally, you could see that this had wounded him. A few years after Tarbell's series comes out, the Supreme Court upholds a decision that dissolves the Standard Oil Company because they'd violated antitrust law. This monopoly was broken up into firms that eventually became Mobil, Chevron, Exxon, big companies themselves. Kathleen Brady told us, while Rockefeller's reputation took a hit from all this, his wallet did not. He still profited from these businesses. And what also happened in the meantime is the automobile became popular and people started using oil to run their cars. So Rockefeller continued to do quite nicely, and Ida was not surprised, but she was disappointed that it had not had more impact. Rockefeller was the richest man in American history, the country's first billionaire. At the time of his death, his net worth equaled 1.5% of the country's GDP. Even Amazon founder Jeffrey Bezos's wealth doesn't rival that. Even so, Brady said, Tarbell's reporting did have an impact. It was no small thing to take on Rockefeller and expose Standard Oil's wrongdoing. And in the process, Tarbell pioneered investigative journalism techniques that are now an industry standard. And she made complex business issues accessible to the average American reader. Business reporting already existed, but it was business news for businessmen. What Ida did was to clarify a complex problem, the trust, that affected people. She helped Americans understand the economic forces that were shaping their lives. I've seen people writing, where is the Ida Tarbell for Amazon? 
Stephanie Gorton again. In 2021, Amazon is the dominant player across many industries. It makes up 40% of online sales in the U.S. It's the second biggest employer in the country. Its web services host over 30% of the world's cloud. And it's not alone in its dominance. The five biggest tech companies, Amazon, along with Apple, Microsoft, Facebook, and Google's Alphabet, have a stock market value over $8 trillion. That is more than the GDP of Japan, whose GDP falls only after the U.S. and China. And the hold that they have on our everyday lives, how impossible it is to go through life without in some way interacting with Amazon or Google. If Ida Tarbell were here today, she would find that alarming. And she would probably be asking questions about what's going on inside these companies. What do they not want her to know? She thought those were questions that everyone should be asking of huge companies like Standard Oil. As she put it in her final article, titled Conclusion, it is our business. Thanks for listening to History This Week. For more moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. If you want to get in touch, shoot us an email at our email address, historythisweek at history.com, or you can leave us a voicemail at 212-351-0410. Special thanks today to our guests, Stephanie Gorton, author of Citizen Reporters, S.S. McClure, Ida Tarbell, and the magazine that rewrote America, Kathleen Brady, author of Ida Tarbell, Portrait of a Muckraker, and Steve Weinberg, author of Taking on the Trust, How Ida Tarbell Brought Down John D. Rockefeller and Standard Oil. This episode was produced by Julia Press. History This Week is also produced by Julie Magruder, Ben Dickstein, and me, Sally Helm. Our editor and sound designer is Jonathan Seary. Our researcher is Emma Fredericks. Our executive producers are McKamey Lynn, Jesse Katz, and Ted Butler. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next week. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.